If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John chapter 8. Uh, that's where we're going to be spending our time together this morning as we continue to walk together uh, with Jesus through this season of His ministry, through this season that, that falls really be, be behind the, the Feast of Booths where we just saw Him, but, but also before his final Passover, that, that season where we know he's going to re-enter into Jerusalem and, and ultimately um, be led to the cross. Uh, if, you, if, you have, if you're new with us, if you're, like, if you're visiting with us this morning, or if you've been out of, out of here for a few weeks for whatever reason, don't, don't worry, you're not too far behind because one of the things that we do here as practice is we just track through uh, books of the Bible, uh, just verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter, trying to be as faithful as we can be uh, to what God has revealed to us uh, in and through His Word uh, to us. And, and, and we do this not because it's convenient. Now, I want to like make that statement. I think, I think there may be a misperception that we don't do big themed sort of like seasons, like we're going to do eight weeks on marriage, and we're going to do 10 weeks on giving, and we're going to do, 10 weeks on giving would be a little long for the record, that's a stretch, three weeks on giving, and, and we're going to do uh, four weeks on purity, and we, I, 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 there's nothing wrong with that, I'm not against topical preaching as long as it's done exegetically, um, but we want to we be just as faithful as we can to what God's saying to us in the Word, and, and I don't want... I don't want our human creativity to get in the way of that. There, there are times when it would be uh, more convenient, I want to say that it would be more convenient to just talk about whatever we want to talk about, uh, to, uh, to just let ourselves be the, be the discerning voice in what we hear. But, but the reality is God has spoken to us, and He's spoken to us in context, in His Word. And, and so when we do this, it forces us to deal with topics, to deal with things that, to, to be perfectly honest, it would be easier and more convenient to just ignore, uh, to just avoid altogether. And so what we try to do is we try to remove our desire, we try to remove our preference, we try to remove our opinions from God's Word and just hear from Him, just to hear from the throne of God itself, and, and instead of instead of just hearing from one of us. And so today we get to hear from the king. So would you stand with me, if you are willing and able? And we will tune our hearts to the word to the word of our Lord. This is John 8, starting in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare that to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, 
many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, God, I just thank you uh, that we get to be here, that we enjoy a liberty that allows us to gather freely as your people. And we don't take that for granted. And we thank you that you're a God who speaks, that you're not silent, that you are not far removed and distant, but that you are but you are here speaking now. And so I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, uh, through your message this morning. I pray that you would move me out of the way. Uh, don't let my weakness, uh, don't let my frailty, don't let my stammering, lisping tongue stand in the way of what you would say to us today. Lord, I, I pray that you would do that, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, time, uh, I, I don't have a great way of starting this, time is an interesting thing. I, I don't know if you've ever considered that, uh, but it's an interesting thing because of, because of how it's adapted into various cultures um, across the globe. Um, in some parts of the world, time is still largely measured simply by the rising or setting of the sun, right? Like, I mean, I've, I've told you uh, just last week about being in Haiti, and in Haiti, time doesn't run on a clock. It just doesn't function that way. It, it runs from sun up to sun down. It, like on a worship service there on a, on a Sunday afternoon. And yes, that's a normal thing there. They start in the morning and they just go through the day. They gather and, and, and you can be singing and you can be praying and you can be in the midst of that worship service. And if they look out the windows and notice that night has fallen, they will immediately, uh, whether you're in the middle of a song or not, they will. some of them will just stand up and they will immediately begin going home because they... they they know that once the sun is fully down, it, it will be dark. It will be dark. There won't be street lights to guide them. It won't be a car to jump in to go home. They're going to be walking through the woods, and so they typically tend to leave before it gets dark. Here in our Western culture, we live and die by the clock. The clock is everything. Time is of the essence. Timing is everything, and we always seem to be running out of time. I mean, this is the culture that we live in. We, we just live and die by the clock. Um, almost every night when I tell our sons that it's time to go to bed, I, I, not almost, every night when I tell one of our sons it's time to go to bed, they will reply with some sort of, uh, uh, of, of a unwillingness, okay, to just do that. There's going to be a complaint. A what? How can it be? And, and every night I've started just doing this going, listen, son, it's not your fault like you haven't done anything wrong. You're not being punished. It just is bedtime. Like we have, we've set that. So it's the clock's fault. Your complaint's not with me. You, you need to take that up with God, honestly. That's between you and him. Um, the real, and that's a good tactic for parents, I'll just tell you. If, you. if you tell them to take it up with God, they seem to let it go a little bit. And the reality is that most of us, most every activity that we participate in, is measured with a clock. We go to school for a certain number of minutes on a given day. We go to school for a certain number of days in a given year, and we go to school for a certain number of years for a given diploma or or degree or certificate or, or whatever. A sports game lasts until the time runs out, right? Until the horn sounds or the buzzer sounds, and then that's it. It's over. Every song you've ever heard has both a beginning and an ending, and so regardless of cultural norms, we are a people bound by time. 
It's the one thing that, that we have zero control over. In the opening couple of verses of this passage, we see Jesus making a reference to a, to a movement that is coming. It's, it's a marker on the timeline of his earthly ministry. It's a point that is coming, that is approaching. And he's reminding the listener that since he became flesh and dwelt among us, he has entered into the timeline now of human history. And it's not in a distant way, but in a personal way. He's here very personally, in, in space and in time. And now we, okay, uh, Jesus and us, our paths have, have been intersected in this very real, very tangible way that is unavoidable because he came into our world. He, he existed in the timeline, physically. And all this is leading to a point uh, on this shared timeline. The whole Gospel of John is all tracking in one direction, a point that has been mentioned throughout this book. And we saw it last week in verse 20. If you look at that, in verse 20 of chapter 8, where we read, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour, or his time, had not yet come. Okay, so... so what that tells us is that there is a point coming when something is going to happen. There's going to be something that happens. And so what that means is that our eyes throughout the Gospel of John are being directed into the future. Now for us, it's the past. But if, if we can imagine we're reading this for the first time, everything is looking forward to this moment that is coming, to this moment that's going to happen in, in real space and real time. John wants us to understand that that this message is leading somewhere. He wants us to understand that this gospel is not just a story. Like, it's not just a fable. I think sometimes we, we treat the Bible like it's a tall tale. Like, there's some moral or ethical lesson to learn in it, but this is not about Paul Bunyan, okay? This is not even, even to take uh, C.S. Lewis or, or Pilgrim's Progress, or one of the great works that we would look at and go, see, look, there's a way to redeem literature and we would say that's not what the Bible is. Those all point to something spiritually. We would say that the Bible is God's word to us. And so it's not just a fable. It's not just for ethical instruction. This whole story that we've been entered into is heading somewhere. It's leading to something. And so now in verse 21, we hear Jesus saying to them again, look at that in 21, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin where I am going, you cannot come. Okay, so, so it's not just that the story is going somewhere, it's that Jesus is going somewhere. The story is not just leading somewhere, Jesus is going somewhere. And that's the first thing I want us to look at is, if you're a note taker, it's just the movement of Jesus. He's here now. Jesus is present. He's with them there in Jerusalem. They're in the temple. He's actually there in those places. But he says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin where I am going. You cannot come. So what that means is that the movement of Jesus is intimately connected to the hour of Jesus. It means that the clock is ticking toward that point in time, and when that moment arrives, everything, everything will change. That's what, that's what Jesus says, says is coming. His movement is a moment, and when that moment arrives, he says this. He says, you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Listen, last week we looked at Jesus in, um, saying, I am the light of the world, right? 
Like we heard him say that. I, I probably have said, I am the light of the world thousands of times in the past two weeks because it's just been resonating in my own heart and mind that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. And now he says that he is going away. He says, I am going away. And, and here's why it's important. We stop at I am the light of the world. Like if we, a lot of times when we get to the I am sayings, we hear the first part. So we say, I am the light of the world. And we go, yes, but that's not where Jesus stopped, right? That sentence continues. That I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, right? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then here in verse 21, he says that, he's, that, that they are going to seek him but that they will not be able to find him. They're going to die in their sin. And instead of being able to follow him, he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And see, what this does, or what, what Jesus is doing here, is he's pointing us, he's pointing out the, the absolute necessity of faith in him for salvation. And he's also pointing out the tragic consequences of being left in the darkness. One commentator said, people in darkness seek for light, but since Jesus is the light, they will not find what they seek apart from him. You see, Jesus understands that we're all searching for something. He understands that we're all looking for something. Life is one great, giant search. It's a, it's a big egg hunt out in a field, and we're just constantly looking for the right one. We're looking for peace. We're looking for hope. I, I, I will contend till, till, I'm, till I'm blue in the face that, that the God of this culture is comfort. And so most of us are looking for comfort in, in whatever form that takes. And we do this in a thousand different ways. Sometimes it's through social channels. All right, we, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are, are proof of that fact, that people are desperate for relationships. Sometimes it's through material channels. Amazon and Target are proof that those things are, are true, that I'm not making that up. The fact that Amazon.com is is, exists in this world, that you can just order everything in the, in the world and it be delivered to your house in two days is beyond my comprehension how they, how they do that. But that is evidence that we're trying to actively seek something all the time because we live in the most abundant society the world has ever known, and yet we're still desperate for everything. Sometimes we even seek the idol of our comfort through spiritual or even religious channels. And all of this, all of this points us to the truth that what we're looking for is, a, is really a new identity. A new identity. And what we're longing for, we truly long for in that is restoration with our Heavenly Father. We're looking, we're looking to temporal things to fill eternal gaps. Life is a great big egg hunt for all of these. There, there's nothing inherently wrong with buying things. Just because you bought, I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt you this way. I think if you bought something, that's okay. I'm, I'm just, but if we're buying things to try and fill a gap in our own heart, if we're trying to fill up our, our lives with stuff, if, if, then that's a problem. That is a problem. And there's nothing wrong with relationships. I mean, especially genuine relationships. I mean, we need that. We were built for and designed for that. But if those relationships become our identity, if they become what we have to have and to, and to not have them would undo us, then that's an idol. And the people in our lives can become idols. And people today, just like the Pharisees of Jesus' time, 
they were looking in all the wrong places, looking in all the places that we tend to look today. It was John Calvin who famously said, the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. That's a, that's a powerful quote, that that is what our minds are naturally gifted at. That what we are naturally good at is creating new idols. Left to our own devices, we would remain fumbling around in the dark, reaching after every new idea, after every new trinket, anything that might be a little shiny. Our son, uh, uh, the littlest one, loves the movie Moana, and I don't want to talk about like ancestry gods and all that stuff. It's a fun Disney movie. Just relax, all right? Um, and, 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 and Moana, right, she goes into this, like, I don't know how to describe it, this pit in the bottom of the ocean, and there's this crazy crab down in there, and he's kind of maniacal, honestly, right? I mean, he's a little scary, but, and, and he sings a song. about being, and, and if you get in the car with my son and you say, hey, man, what do you want to hear? He'll go, let's play Shiny. And the whole and the whole deal is this is, is I don't know that Disney had this planned or not, but it's basically it's a commentary on our culture today. That this crab wants to be shiny, he wants to have everything, he wants to and so he decorates himself up with a bunch of litter at the bottom of the ocean. Now it's getting a little out of hand. I'm sorry, this illustration has probably run its course. But the the bottom line is it's us. That what we want is the shiny thing. And then, he, even in the part of the song, he talks about how the fish chase the shiny thing. Do, do you, and understand, we're, we're chasing after fishing lures when God's offering us real food. We're running after the shiny things of the world when God's offering us the light of the world. And that's a problem. Left to ourselves, we, we remain caught in this tension of, of both comfort and contention. Again, for the, most, for the most materially abundant culture that the world has ever known, there sure is a lot of arguing about stuff. And so what Jesus does is he comes into this world of, of what I would just call trinket chasers, this world that's always searching for something shiny, and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And blinded by their own abundance, blinded by the shiny of the world, they're left in their own confusion. Look at 22. The Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Listen, this movement of Jesus, this upcoming change of venue that he is about to make is is misunderstood because they don't understand the message of Jesus. They don't understand the message of Jesus. Look back at verse 23. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's just told them that he is going away, right? He said, I am, I am going away, and, and that they won't be able to find him. And then now, he basically lays out the most fundamental reality of the gospel message for them. <clears throat> he says, for unless you believe, I, I, you need to hear this, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, if you, if you read that sentence in the original language, you would actually read it a little bit differently. And instead of reading, I am he, you would just read the words, I am. So it's unless you believe, unless you trust, unless you have faith that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, now that's a hard truth. I mean, we can agree on that. That's a hard truth right there. 
but it's not complicated. Just because it's hard doesn't make it complicated. It's actually pretty simple. And what they just heard is they were standing there, and what we need to hear as the audience sitting here today and, and, and interacting with this, walking with this, hearing from Jesus today, was not just a claim of exclusivity. It's not just Jesus saying that I'm the only way, though that much was clear. What they also would have heard in this moment is a claim of divinity and been immediately transported back to a point in time, again, a moment of time in their own history, when a shepherd named Moses, you know this story, when this guy named Moses goes out to the side of a hill, he is, he is tending his, his father-in-law's flocks on this hillside, and he has an encounter with a burning bush. You see, that's where God communicated his name to his servant. Moses, and, and, and I think we, we forget this too because we don't send, tend to read Bible characters like they're real human beings. Like Moses didn't plan for that. He didn't wake up this, that morning and go, you know what would be cool? I'm going to go out to a field and there's going to be a burning bush out there and I'm going to talk to it. You think his family would have stepped in? Uh, I, don't think, I think today you need to rest, right? It seems like you, maybe you have a bug. It's just... Stay in the house for a while. You don't need to be out in the sun talking like this. No, Moses didn't plan that. He didn't go out in the field expecting to see a, a burning bush. No more than I'll walk out here today and expect to see one of our shrubs on fire and speaking, right? Like, that's not what he had planned for his day. But that was where God chose to communicate his name to his servant. Can you imagine that? I mean, had no idea what he was getting himself into when he went out there. And God told Moses, this is Exodus 3, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God spoke to him, like audibly spoke to him. And God commissioned Moses at that moment to go into Egypt and to go to Pharaoh, to go to the most powerful person on the planet, who, by the way, who was raised as his basic half-brother. You're going to go back to where you came from, and you're going to tell him to let God's people go. I mean, I don't, that's a weird day. God told Moses to go. He sent him as his messenger. And so Moses asked him, as any messenger would do, whose message am I carrying? Effectively, who am I supposed to tell them has sent me? He says, what is your name? And in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And then he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What Jesus just told the people in no uncertain terms, terms that they would have picked up, is that I am is here. That he's here and he's not a burning bush anymore. And unless you believe that, unless you believe that Jesus is I am, unless you believe that he is God himself, you will die in your sins. You see, Jesus does make some hard claims. He doesn't just ask to be your buddy. He says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And every other faith and every other worldview and every other belief system that you will find in the world, every single one of them, it's about what we do to get ourselves back to God. It's about what we do to get ourselves back to, back to God. Far Eastern religions uh, seek to attain some sort of ethereal enlightenment. It's hard to quantify or understand some sort of transcendent existence that's basically achieved by emptying oneself of everything, which I think we know is impossible. 
It's literally a belief in nothing. In, in some faiths, there are specific acts that one must perform over the course of time, over the course of their lifetime, in order to achieve enough, enough good works to get yourself back to God. It's about climbing the mountain to get to Him. Restoration is at the summit if we can just, if we can just somehow will ourselves up the hill. But that's not what it is in Christianity. It's only in Christianity that God doesn't say, work your way back to me. But rather, I am coming to you. And there's a difference there. Jesus, Jesus said that here. He said, I am from above. Listen, he's not, he's not from this world. He's not. He's, he's not from this country. He's not from this neighborhood. No, it, it's, it's that in his goodness and in his mercy, he has moved into our neighborhood. He has moved into our country. He has moved into our world. He has set up residence here, and so we don't control him. He's not a product of this world. He came and lived, he came as an outsider and lived as an insider so that those who are called according to his purpose might, might come to see him, might come to know him and, and ultimately to trust him, to, to believe in him. And as he said last week, to follow him as his disciples. That's the message of Jesus, is that God himself has come to seek and to save the lost. It's that we can't save ourselves, and so God in Christ has come to offer grace and forgiveness for our sins. You see, in his goodness and mercy, he has come. But, but like the clock at the end of the football game, right? There is a limit. Uh, just like Jesus... Uh, limited himself to an earthly body during his mission here. The mission of Christ on earth was for but a season. And his hour, his hour was coming. So while they were witnesses to the movement of Jesus, Jesus, and even witnesses to the message of Jesus, they were still deaf to the meaning of Jesus. Look back at verse 27. In 27, we're told that they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He, will, he has not let me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Again, Jesus points them back to their own story. He points them back to their own story. He points them back to, their, to the Exodus story when the people had, had not trusted in God. They had not trusted in Him. They, they, had, they had turned from Him. They had doubted the plan and, and purpose of God for His people. And, and so God had sent fiery serpents. This is, this, is, this is in Numbers. He sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And what we would say, this is the righteous judgment of a holy God against a wicked people. They did not trust him. They did not follow after him. They did not believe in him. And the judgment for that sin of unbelief, for that rebellion against their creator, was to die in the wilderness outside of the promised land. But even in that judgment, if you remember this story, even in that judgment, even which, by the way, it sounds like the worst judgment ever. Fiery serpents everywhere is the scariest thing I can, I can even begin to imagine. Even in the midst of that, God provided a way of redemption. You see, God always preserves a remnant of his people. And the Lord said to Moses, again, this is Numbers 21, he said, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, 
shall live. It was that if the guilty would come and look at this pole with this fiery serpent on it, if they would come and look to him for their salvation, they would be rescued. That's that's the story that Jesus is pointing them to here. And instead of making another snake on a pole, all right, Jesus is pointing them to an hour that is to come, a time that is coming when he himself will be lifted up. And so the call is the same to us today. It's to humble, humble ourselves. It's to look to Jesus. It's to understand that we cannot save ourselves. It's what we talk with our kids about all the time. That we can't earn this, that we can't merit this. We cannot save ourselves. It's to realize that the venom of sin isn't just near us, it's not around us. That there, it's not that there are snakes coming and we need to be careful. It's that it's already in us. That we too have an hour that is coming. And that hour is the righteous judgment of God. And when our hour comes, apart from Him, we'll die in our sins. But Jesus says when his hour comes, when Jesus is lifted up, he's the one we must look to. He's the one we must follow. Or as he says, we will die in our sins. So so what we understand now, looking back at that moment in the past, is that Jesus was pointing them forward to the cross. He was pointing his people to the cross. That's the meaning of his message. I read a story recently that, I'll be honest, I can't verify, and it honestly sounds like a preacher story. And y'all know those happen, right? I don't do that, but I am going to relate this story to you. I tried to verify if it was true or not, but uh, I don't know. Anyway, it sounds too good to be true. But I'm going to share it with you anyway. Uh, uh, you may have heard at some point that the geographical center of, of London is a place called Charing Cross. Um, I, I don't know if you know that, but it is. It's, it's a place where six different Roots come together, all kind of forged. It's this one big hub, and, and basically from that point, you can get to anywhere else in the city that you need to. And the story goes, uh, there was a little boy, it always starts with a little boy, right, who was lost, and, uh, and he was crying, he's in tears because he's lost, he can't find his mom, can't find, he, he's, just, he's, he's in London, and a policeman comes across this young boy and says, uh, wipes away the tears from his eyes, of course, because policemen and stories wipe tears away from their eyes. And he says to the boy, he says, uh, can I arrange to have you taken home? Can I arrange to have somebody come? Hey, I see you're lost. I know you're upset. Can I arrange to have somebody take you, take you home so you would be safe? And the boy uh, looks at him, you know, without missing a beat and says to him, oh, no, sir, take me to the cross and I'll find my way home. The idea being that if I get back to that city center, if I get back to that one place, from there I can get wherever I need to be. Take me to the cross and I'll find my way home. Take me to the place where the Son of Man was lifted up. As a people, man, we tend to complicate things. And we're really good at making simple things complicated. We tend to look to popular culture. We tend to look to political ideology. I don't know if anybody's seen any of that in the news this week. Um, we tend to look to dynamic leaders, people with big personalities. We look to those people in hopes that we'll, we'll find our way, in hopes that someone or something will at least shine a light on the path that we're supposed to be walking on. 
to set us in the right direction, to get us, to get us home. We look all over. I mean, we do this. I do this in my own life. I look all over the place. You ever ask for signs? Be careful asking for signs. The one place we must look is to the cross. We look to the place where the Son of God was lifted up. Where He was lifted up. That place where both justice and mercy collided together. We look to that hour when Jesus took our sins upon Himself. When He took the justice that we deserve so that we can have the mercy that He in His kindness was pleased to provide. We look to the cross where Jesus truly bled and died, where the sinless one took the place of the sinner. We look to the cross. We look to that day when, if you remember, when darkness fell as he breathed his last, when darkness fell on the earth, we look to that point and we remember that it was at that moment that Jesus declared, it is finished. And what we see is that in the midst of that great darkness, in the midst of the darkest day in human history, it is the light of life that shines in all his brilliance. I mean, the question for us is, are we resting in that? Like, are we actively looking to the cross? Is this something that we do? Are we actively believing that he is the light of the world, that he is our only hope for salvation? Or... Are we finding our identities in the things that we can accomplish? The work that we could do that might make us likable to a holy God? Are we finding our identity in what we can accomplish or what He has accomplished for us? That's where we have to find our rest. I would say even maybe now more than any other point in my personal history, that's ringing true. Because the world seems like it's just right on the verge of of flipping upside down. I'm not a flat earth guy, by the way. I don't mean that. I just mean it feels like the world is is just primed right now to destroy itself. And I'll be honest, there's some voices coming from some places that I wish they would really just be quiet. (laughs) I've got some good friends and and ministering in the church who, who are allowing their political views to become their God. By the way, I'm not looking at anybody particular here. So if, you, if I've made eye contact with you just now, that's not like a guilt thing, not targeting anyone here. Be very careful with that. If you point people to the darkness, you know what they'll find. I mean, they'll find darkness. If you point them to the light, you can't guarantee it, but you can hope and pray that they'll see it, that they'll come to know it that they'll come to rest in it, that their identity, their comfort, their peace won't be found in what Donald Trump says or what any number of senators say or what some Supreme Court decides to vote or what legislation may or may not pass. At the end of the day, we know how this ends. It ends with the king on his throne, ruling and reigning over his world. And the biggest problem that I see in the church today, at this moment, this might be different tomorrow, is that most of us think that's a future event rather than a present one. We look to the cross because that's where we find Jesus. You'll be challenged in that this week. You'll probably be challenged in that even this day if you turn on your TV. That's why we have to choose daily, daily to fix our eyes 
on him, to tune our hearts to sing his song and to walk the ancient past that he's already laid out for us. That he's already laid out for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I know that we come in here with baggage. I know that I do. I know that every single soul in this room came in here today with some sort of grief, some sort of angst, some sort of fear or doubt, some sort of level of discomfort. And so what I pray now is that we would submit that to you. That that maybe we just have never done that. We've never just given our lives to you and said, why don't you be the king of my heart? Why don't you rule and reign now in me? that we don't take up our cross daily and follow you because we're afraid that you're going to lead us into something we're scared of. Lord, I pray that your church would shine as a light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I pray that your church would be a beacon of truth. Help us to never hide that, even when it's ugly. Help us to be a confessional people who will, who will lay out our lives before you because we know you know it already. Help us to practice repentance even in the public square. Help us to see a people who are willing to apologize when we're wrong. And help us to walk in truth, Lord. Help us to follow after you, chase after you, run after you, and hear from you. Lord, help us to be Christians. Help us to be Christ's ones, his people. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.